0: Hi, my name is Charles, and I'm Jian. and we'll be reading today's scripture, which comes from James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Amen. And now let's give our attention to the preaching of God's word. Thank you. Thanks be to God. Thank you, June, and thank you, Charles. We come to this vision uh, of CCSC, and I believe a vision for every church. And then mission number two. Mission number two today. In community. Just as a refresher, the scriptures lay out that the goal or the ultimate end game that God has with you and with me, if Jesus has become your God and Savior, is to transform you inside out, is to completely change you into the beautiful resemblance of Jesus Christ. So, our vision, because it's God's own vision, is to replicate himself, to see his own image in all of his people. That is what gives him maximum glory. That's what gives us our maximum joy, is that each and every one of his people will be changed into the full likeness of Jesus Christ. So last week, as a refresher, we talked about mission number one. Missions are how you go about to fulfill or experience your vision. So how do we then, as a church, become more like Jesus. Mission number one from last week, to look more like Jesus, you have to look at Jesus. Oh, I I know that sounds almost like common sense or like a platitude, but believe me, it is not. You can no longer assume, as one pastor, I do not assume that people understand or actually do this in their daily lives. If you want to look more like Jesus, You really have to give a lot more looks at Jesus. And of course, first and foremost, that means whenever you read or hear or understand the Bible, the Bible, like all of its preaching, all of its teaching, all of its seminars, all of its applications, every tip or insight you get from the Bible, frankly, my friends, if all you hear from the Bible is be more like so-and-so or be a better version of you or hold up this model and hero and just imitate him, I'm sorry to say to you, you're going to end up looking like him or her or someone else. But only when you understand, when you center and find the beauty, the centrality of Jesus, not only in scriptures, but in all of life, then and only then, God's spirit promises, I'm going to make you look more like him. So mission number one was to center Christ. That's our name. It's to find him and to put him at the center of everything that we do. In other words, behold him, look at him. Well, today is mission number two. If we can see this next slide. Mission number two is in community. In community, this is how we're going to be transformed into the image of Jesus. Last but not least, next week, mission number three is with compassion. But today, in community, that means to belong to his people. Next week is to behave and to bless the world like him. Thanks to Daniel, the creative. You have no idea how much improved this is. I gave a hand drawing of this visual here. And this is um, much clearer. This is much better here. So mission number two today is all about community. Three parts, okay, as usual. Crisis of community. Today we're facing a pretty massive crisis when it comes to church community. Second, commands in community. Third, last but not least, I'm gonna call it a hail A Hail Mary, Hail Mary with a question mark. It's a question I'm going to ask for community. So crisis of community, commands in community, third, a Hail Mary for community. Okay, here's the crisis. Here's the crisis. America is undergoing the largest, fastest religious shift in all of our history. In eight eight decades since the Gallup poll was taken, According to the book, The Great Dechurching, published in 2023, 40 million Americans no longer go to church. Now there, that stat is 40 million Americans who used to go to church. I'm not talking about unchurched. 40 million people used to go to church no longer go. 2023, that's 16% of the American population. That's pretty massive. More people now in America do not attend a church than attend. That's pretty shocking. The greatest gains, numerical gains of people who went to church, when do you think that happened in American history? It's usual throughout all of church history. It's after a great, great suffering or crisis, post-Civil War And then we had movements called the Great Awakenings, where God brought revival to an entire nation. But we're now going through the reverse, the reverse. Of people who do go to church in America, what percentage attend actually nearly every week? What percentage of churchgoers actually come nearly every Sunday? The survey showed 24%. So a quarter of churchgoers actually come every week. What an unimaginable shift, I would say. Why? Again, the great why. What is your diagnosis for this? The book, surveys, mobility, a lot of movement. If you move out of town, move out of a church that you used to be comfortable with, that you loved. It's hard to get plugged into a new church, sure. The sheer busyness and exhaustion of life just your work life, your weekly life. You have no bandwidth left. That was an article in the Atlantic, the unknown or surprising reason why people are leaving church. You just have no time and space left. How about this? The greatest percentage of people who are de-churched, who used to go to church but no longer go, are those who are cultural, right? You grew up in a church. You were interested in some causes or maybe you became very politically cause-oriented person, but you are not converted. So the biggest percentage of people who used to go to church no longer go to church are what you would say cultural, Christian in name only, but not yet born again or converted. Then you have, of course, especially here in LA and Orange County, weekend options, better options maybe to do with your life. The convenience and the habits now of online worship since COVID. Oh my goodness, how convenient and easy that has become. Then the scandals. The abuses, the hypocrisy sure have not helped the church, but that's always been happening. And then the social fallouts. Crisis? Oh, a big one. So what to do with this? What do we do with that? Another book in 2023, published by Andrew Root and Blair Bertrand, a book entitled When Church Stops Working. They did their own survey, and they observed that Christian books published from the 70s, 80s, 90s, pre-COVID, during COVID, and after COVID. Again, this book was published in 2023. They all basically proposed the same solution. The same solution for de-churching or church decline. If you're losing people, if you're losing money, if you're losing influence in the broader society, All of the books, if you just kind of summarize it, they all share the same solution. Here it is, effective innovation. Effective innovation. In other words, church, you got to learn to do more and you got to learn to do it better. To be sure, I I agree with that. I mean, I agree with that in in a lot of ways. I mean, in our online tools, programming, just maybe more professionalism, more tech, more money, more resources, more org, more more organizational flow, branding. Although I agree with it on face value, of course, these are all helpful things. But what if secular diagnoses only call for secular solutions? What if for decades upon decades, the American church has fallen under a spell of secular diagnoses and then offering secular solutions. And maybe that kind of narrative led to the decline and the crisis of the church in the first place. What if, though, the greatest and deepest crisis in the American church and our church and every single church is spiritual? Spiritual? It's just rock bottom spiritual, not secular, in nature. Next slide, please. Here's the book. You're welcome. You don't have to read it. Here's its conclusion. It took him 88 pages to get here finally. To finally name it, the real crisis is encountering a living God. I can't agree with that more as one of the pastors. Again, I'm not suggesting in any shape or form that the secular diagnoses or solutions aren't necessary and helpful. But the deepest, most apparent, or, or the most important crisis that's taking place is, I just don't think people are meeting God. Encountering a living God. Hmm. So instead of the church just do more and do it better on the surface, maybe we should do what James tells us to do in this passage. Look at this passage. Look at it. James is uh, persistent, practical, insightful, and detailed about the normal life of a church. And it's all steeped in prayer. Prayer. Church life is a prayer life. Why? Why? Let me put it this way. Church life is doing life in need of God and in need of one another. Prayer is the expression that you and I, more than any secular solutions out there, That we are most in need. People should go to church. People should function in a church. We become a church with a group of people who feel our most desperate fundamental need is God and His people. Look at verse 13. Well, we're gonna show for 14, 15, but in 13 it says if you're suffering, sick, or happy, you should pray. You should pray, or if you're happy, you should praise. Why should you pray when you're suffering or sick? Because church people believe God can heal and do things that nobody else can. Look at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Now let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Oil, I believe, was of a medicinal value. Oil was not just um, artificial gestures, not just symbolic. No, oil actually brought medicinal value. So even in the ancient church, get your medicine and let's also pray. Go to the hospital, go to the doctor, do what God already gave as gifts to natural science and let's also pray. But notice here in verse 14, call other people, call the leaders, call the small group leaders, call the pastors, call the shepherds of your church, In verse 14, church life is asking other people to pray because you know your life boils down to not only do you need God, but you need the people of God. You need to belong to the people of God. You need to be prayed for by the people of God. And then verse 15 says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. The prayer of faith. Now, don't be turned off by that. That does not mean you never doubt, you never question how much faith you have. It doesn't mean that you have 100% full fervency of faith every time you pray. No, faith really means more about who you pray to. That matters way more than how much faith with which you pray. Faith gives you a direction of who you pray to more than how much fervency and belief you bring to the table. And when you pray with faith, notice, God does the saving, the raising, the forgiving, and the healing. Massive crisis. Not in other parts of the world, though, I assure you not. Not in Africa or South America or Asia, but. Here in America, oh yes, there's a great, great dechurching and decline. Don't lose heart. And then, as you pay attention to this passage, I know, man, it sounds so so commonsensical or nonsensical or like a a cliche or impractical. Really, just wow, we should pray. It sounds like with the massive problems we're facing, we're just trying to kick the can down the road and we're deferring it and delaying it and it's almost even frustrating to hear. But I assure you, James, which is the scriptures, moved by the spirit of God, tells us today here at CCSC, there is nothing or nobody that will turn around and renew the church Than God himself and the people of God who need God and need one another in prayer. Crisis, but there's hope. Second commands, the commands in the community or the church community back to the great, uh, this book, great do churching. They did a survey of why people, after a while, they de and left in the past, or why they might return. Top of the list, number one reason why people do return to a church are new friends. New friends. Again, that never gets old. Hmm? Personal, social invitation and contact. Never gets old. That's how the church grew in the book of Acts. Just... People, one-on-one, inviting and being warm, hospitable, welcoming, definitely mercy, meeting people's obvious and evident needs. That's the front door to Christian community called the church. But what else does the church do? What else does the church do? We've got five commands for us today, very quickly. There's more, but it's just at least these five commands of what the church, the church community of Jesus Christ does. And as I go over them, I want to ask you this question. Can you reconcile the biblical images and commands of what it means to be a community of Jesus Christ with your present involvement? Okay, here's number one. Galatians chapter 6 verse 2. Bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens. (laughs) My goodness. You know, you can walk into a small group you can walk into even Sunday service feeling like the weight of the world in your life is crushing you. Like your heart and your body almost feels like it can't withstand making it to tomorrow. What does the church do? Well, if you come to church, the people of God, there are people around you who start to take up and lift up some of the weight. You know, they kind of divide the weight that's crushing down upon you. They kind of make you feel you're not alone in the world, no far from it. We go through very similar things and I'm here now to bear your burdens. Galatians 6 verse two, this is a command when you and I feel so down and out and you almost feel like you dread tomorrow, the people of God make you feel that the burden is lightened. It's divided. It's shared. That's what the church should do. How about Ephesians chapter five, verse 21? Another command, submit, submit. My needs, my preferences... My agenda can take a second backseat to yours. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, we have to encourage one another. Encourage one another. It says regularly and daily. Some of you need so much more courage. Absolutely. Where do you get that? Not just straight from God to the Holy Spirit. You get it from his people. Courage to make the right decision. Courage to do what is right at work. Courage to have that difficult conversation, but in humility and love. Courage. That's what the people of God do for one another. We breathe in courage. You have to have courage to follow Jesus and do what's right. How about a fourth command, Romans chapter 15, verse 14? Correct. (laughs) Correct and be corrected. How else do you think you and I are going to really look like and behave inside out more like Jesus? You need other people to tell you otherwise. Hey, hey, pastor, you know, um, when you said that the other day, the way you said it, or the words you used, or the tone and body language you gave off, didn't really uh, help the situation. Oh, thank you for that correction, the sharpening. Because if it doesn't help the other person or help the situation, oh, I could learn from that. Correction? Bear one another's burdens, submit, encourage, correct. At least four so far. And the main vehicle or mechanism through which CCSC offers this are small groups. Small groups should facilitate and offer at least one or two or three, maybe if not all of these things. Now here's the fifth command, which is in our passage. And I think it's the most unique and startling of any other group you could ever belong to. Here's the fifth command in community. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Confess your sins and pray. Hmm. Do you have anyone you can do this with? If your spouse, wonderful, what a gift. But even aside from your spouse, do you have anyone that you have ever confessed your sins to and then the other person prayed for you? Do you have a safe, trusted kind of go-to relationships that you can do that with? Chapter 5, verse 16, again, it reads, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And I would say that I don't know if you're really part of any church community, CCSC or any other church, until you are able to confess your sins and be prayed for. The startling thing about the community of God, more than any social club or fun club or common interest club or hobby club or alumni club or business club you could ever belong to is that you have a person you can come to and confess your sins, and get prayer for. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous, again, that recovery group, along with many other recovery groups, were founded by the Church of Jesus Christ. They just cut and pasted principles from the Bible, but I think it's high time that the Church of Jesus Christ has to learn now from what she started, which is AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, when you come into one of those groups, from day one, day one, just the start of the small group, nobody pretends, nobody postures, nobody tries to act like you have no sin, like you don't have a struggle, like you don't have an addiction to something. But from day one, everyone goes around and says, my name is Harold, and I may just fill in the blank." And to be able to confess, to admit, and to belong to a group where everyone else is confessing and admitting and owning up to their own sin is a remarkable feature of the Church of Jesus Christ. It should be. And when you confess your addiction or your sin, this is not to be forgiven. Unless your sin is against someone else. Yes, the Bible says, if you are sinning against someone else, go directly to that person so that you might be forgiven and reconciled. But you are not confessing your sins to someone else, unless it's against that someone else, to be forgiven, but to get all the help and all the healing from that sin. (coughs) We confess it so that it says that we may be healed from it or against it. You know, oftentimes, oftentimes what we call psychosomatic, psychosomatic ailments or illnesses have spiritual causes to it. Here's what it reads in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 14. A man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit who can bear. When was the last time you we're able to share with somebody. I committed this sin about three, four years ago, and oh, it haunts me. It wrecks me. I feel the guilt and shame of it. I still feel down and depressed or sick about it. No one can bear that alone. Confess it, pray that you might be healed. Oh, parents, parents, your children, oh, how they're behaving, how they're turning out, who they're hanging out with, what their future trajectory might be. The worry, the anxiety that that causes you, are you able to confess that? Likewise, as one of your pastors, oh, I didn't face this as a parent, but Maybe in large part with CCSE, CCSE became like a third child for me. And once I was able to confess, I struggle with anxiety and worry as if my own worth depends upon the life of this child or the life of this church. You're able to confess that and get prayer for that. Do you know how much your blood pressure and your heart rate starts to come down? Do you know how much healing and freedom that starts to bring? Some of you are really, really, you just haven't forgiven that person yet. You really haven't. I mean, almost every time you get together with someone else, that person's name comes up. Will you confess? I, I am so bitter and I have not forgiven this person yet. I'm so sorry for all the times I've gossiped and slandered about this person. There's no reason for that. Would you pray for me? How about the two sins that most people are the last to admit? Okay, these are the two sins that you probably never hear in your small group, okay? Here they are. I confess that I am jealous. I am just envious of a certain person's lifestyle, certain person's promotions, of a certain person's just wealth and success. I can't stand it. It eats me up. Or how about this? I confess the sin That no matter how pretty good 2023 went, 2024 has just got to be that much better. The sin of greed. Greed. You know what a greedy person thinks and feels and says, and it never stops? It's one word. More. Just more. I mean, why can't my business do more? Why can't my family do more? Why can't my wealth grow more? More. And I tell you, my friends, did you know that whether you're a religious person, Christian person or not, envy, greed, bitterness, unforgiveness, overworry, anxiety, idolatry, idolatry. You see, you live through something else. You live for something else. All of that shows up in your brain. It shows up in your heart. shows up in your lungs. It shows up in your liver. It is detrimental to your body. Oh, but James tells us, in the community of God's people in the church, to confess your sins and to be prayed for by someone trustworthy and caring, oh, it brings healing. This is something no other group can offer. Confess your sins and pray for one another. And in verse 16, toward the second half, it said, the prayer of a righteous person has great power. It gives us the example of the prophet Elijah, whose prayers stopped and started rain after a period of three years and six months. Quite remarkable. Because the prophet Elijah prayed, the rain stopped and then started After three and a half years, this is an inescapable teaching in the book of James of what I would call relative righteousness, Hmm? relative righteousness. Everyone in this room, we instinctively believe and function out of relative righteousness, because I'll ask you this question. If you have an urgent, important, very, very important, almost life or death matter of a prayer request, you want someone to pray for you, who do you call? who do you text? Who do you reach out to first? And let me guess, the person you reach out to first is someone that you know instinctively prays, will pray, and then somehow you just believe, you know, that person's prayer, it's powerful. <laughs> I think that person's prayer is going to work. That's relative righteousness. Righteousness. And that's what Elijah had. Let me get to this third part. I'll wrap this all together here. Crisis, crisis of community, commands in community, Hail Mary for community. Now, the reason I call it Hail Mary, as you know that many, many people turn to Mary to pray and intercede on our behalf. This is my way of asking the question, who makes prayer really work? Or how do you know prayer can really work? Do you have to be like Elijah? Do you have to be relatively as righteous as him? But James tells us in verse 17, notice that little phrase, but his nature is like ours. Why do you think he adds that? Why do you think James says, uh, Elijah prayed three and a half years, he stopped and started the rain, but his nature was like ours. Translation, he's just like you and me. So why would God listen to and answer any of my prayers or your prayers? Why would God pay attention to it and deliver on it? Again, it's because, is it because I pray to Elijah or to Mother Mary? Well, here's what the rest of the scriptures say. There is such a thing as relative righteousness because you know there are certain people you would rather go to because you trust them, you know they'll pray, you know think their prayers are powerful, but Romans chapter three verse ten says this, although you might be relatively more righteous than the person sitting next to you, but in comparison to God, there is none righteous, no not one romans three ten none righteous no not one for because God is perfectly, flawlessly righteous. God is holy, holy, holy. So again, it begs the question, how in the world do your prayers and my prayers work with a perfectly holy, 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 righteous God? James tells us in verse 14, prayer works, not because of the name of Elijah, not because of Mother Mary, but because you pray it in the name of the Lord. Pray in the name of the Lord. Pray in his name. Go to him in your prayers. And who would that Lord be? Chapter one, verse one of this letter, James says, Jesus Christ, the Lord. Now, mind you, Jesus was once the dead brother of James, the author of this letter. I don't know how many of you are ever attempted to worship your sibling. I don't know how many, how many of you would lose your minds and say, my sibling is the Lord. But here James at the opening of his letter says, my once dead brother, by the name of Jesus, he's Lord. And every prayer you ever pray will only work Because you pray it in the name of my dead brother. And why is he Lord now? Because he's risen from the dead. Listen, there is great working power in the prayer of someone relatively more righteous than you. Like in Elijah. But then by logical extension, what that would mean is, what if someone perfectly righteous prayed? What if someone who's not just relatively righteous, but perfect, prayed, then that would mean a perfectly righteous person's prayers have perfectly working power. Something that's seared into my um, heart is this episode where Jesus turns to Simon Peter in Luke chapter 22 and he says, Simon, Simon. Do you know how tender and affectionate that is when he you repeats your name? Simon, Simon. One day Satan came to me and asked to sift you like wheat. My goodness, what does that mean? Jesus told Simon Peter, the devil demanded your life, your soul, your blood, and the devil is gonna come and test you so that he can kill you. But then Jesus goes on to say, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you turn, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, go and strengthen your brothers. Jesus does not say, Peter, I hope you turn. I hope you make it. I hope you last. Hopefully you're a resilient person. No, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't suggest if you turn or if you go and strengthen my brothers. No, it's just a matter of when. Satan asked to take you out. But I have prayed for you. And when you turn, go and strengthen the rest of the disciples. What is Jesus saying here? Peter, Peter, Simon, Simon. When I pray for you, it never gets turned down. When I pray for you, Jesus, it's perfectly working and effective. In other words, the past prayer of Jesus on the behalf of Simon Peter protected and preserved him all the way into the future, even when Satan wanted to take him out. Such is the perfect, powerful, effective prayer life. Of Jesus Christ. Breaks through every boundary, every geography, every language or culture. It even breaks through time and space. You know, Christopher Nolan, uh, I guess one of my favorite directors for sure, the, bo- uh, the movie Interstellar. <clears throat> There's a scene where the astronaut, you know, Matthew McConaughey, when he leaves his daughter and he's wailing, that's one of the most unforgettable scenes, but he comes back and he sees his daughter behind a pile of books and it's this like vortex, you know, I don't, I can't even explain to you what that is, but he can see time and space kind of mapped out and he's trapped behind a wall and the father is doing everything desperately and frantically to make contact with his daughter across all of time and space. Do you know that when you pray, you enter that realm? That Jesus is making contact with you? Do you know that when you pray in the name of Jesus Christ, you are coming into communion with the God outside of time and space? And do you not know right now that the only Hail Mary and hope for the church of Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ himself praying for you. For in Romans chapter eight, it says, he unceasingly with groans too deep for words through the Holy Spirit with infinitely more power and wisdom is praying for the church. And if a perfect man is praying for this church, it will be perfectly powerful and effective. This is why Robert McShane once admitted this. Robert McShane, next quote. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies, yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. He is praying for me. Jesus is praying for you. Jesus in the past, absolutely, radically affects your present and saves and determines your future. Crisis, oh, massive crisis. A lot of reasons to be discouraged and depressed. But James gives us commands to heal hurting, broken, sinful people just like me and you. Desperately in need of an encounter with the living God. And what we do have more than any other group in all the world is much better than a hail mary for here's what jesus prayed in john chapter 17 verses 20 to 24. i do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through the word my friends jesus prayed for you in 2024 he does not pray generally for the world who do not believe in him. But if you believe in me through the word of God, Jesus thought of you. Verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. What is Jesus' own vision? What is his own final prayer request for his people? He's basically saying, I hope you become just like me. What does that mean? Jesus, he's always been loved and he's always been loving in happy, holy community. It's called the Trinity. Jesus says, I hope the church becomes just like God, the father, Jesus, the son, and the Holy Spirit, one in love. His vision, here's his prayer for you. Then he goes on, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Listen, more than anything the church of Jesus Christ could ever do for all of our ministries and programs at Witness, there is nothing more Christ-like and powerful this request that Jesus gives over and over and over again the world will believe that God sent Jesus the, Jesus the Son to be Savior when we behave as one in love. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. my goodness. The prayer life spans all of time. Before the world was created, I loved you. When the world no longer exists into eternal glory, God is saying through Jesus, I will love you. Because if Jesus prayed for you in the past, and if Jesus through the Holy Spirit prays for you today, Your future and my future is not a crisis. It's nothing but glory and the fullness of love. And to that end, may we function in community. To that end, may we behave like the community of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ will outlast, out-influence, and be more glorified than any club, organization, alumni, group, corporation, practice, business, politics, or government you could ever belong to. Do you actually believe that? That for you to belong to the Church of Jesus Christ will out influence any other group you could ever belong to? Here's why I believe that. Because this is a prayer not in the name of Elijah. This is not a prayer in the name of Mother Mary. This is not a prayer that's dependent upon you and me. This is a prayer prayed by the very Lord Jesus Christ himself. And in the name of Jesus Christ, God is and will surely do it. So you join me in community, praying for what he prayed for. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the power, the riches of your word but also the prayers of Jesus Christ who precede us and now are presently active and unceasing for us. Holy Spirit, teach us to pray, to even confess our sins to one another and to be prayed for, to bear, to correct, to submit, and to encourage. Lord, may this community here, your beloved church, whom you have begun and you have promised to finish by the prayers of a perfectly righteous man may we not only take heart but may we as well act like you in community hear us we pray now as we respond in worship in Jesus name amen